News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the ceremonies continue in the United Kingdom as we get closer and closer to the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Let's get an update now with our Global News European correspondent, Redmond Shannon. Hello, Redmond. Good morning, Simi. So how are things now? It seems like the crowds are just getting bigger. Yes, well, the um, crowds are still filing past the coffin of Queen Elizabeth II in Edinburgh at St. Giles Cathedral. Uh, it is around uh, lunchtime as I speak to you now here, and uh, for another couple of hours, people will still be able to file past. Wait times varied greatly overnight, so right through the night people were lining up. Uh, probably to get there at around 5 a.m. this morning, local time was the best time apparently. If you started last night, you had a huge long wait time. If you came in the middle of the night, you were probably doing okay. Now people are being told if you're at the back of the line trying to get in to see her, you're, there's no that you will see the coffin because uh, later today uh, the coffin will be taken to Edinburgh Airport flown to uh, the Royal Air Force Base at Northolt near London and then brought to Buckingham Palace uh, and uh, her uh, coffin will remain there for one night before being brought to Westminster Hall at the Houses of Parliament tomorrow to begin that uh, long period of lying in state. So that will be between Wednesday evening here all the way up till Monday morning, 24-7. People will be um, able to line up and uh, try to see her at Westminster Hall just before the funeral on Monday. Uh, the wait times here are expected to be even greater. Um, there are estimates, hundreds of thousands. I see half a million mentioned. You see a million mentioned. Wow. Possible to know because, of course, it's been 70 years since this has happened. We don't know how many people are going to want to show up. It's safe to say it's going to be a lot of people. It sure sounds like it. And have I seen that they've been put? People have been putting tents up, like they're getting ready to camp out. Yeah. So some people uh, ride um, on, on uh, that by Lambeth Bridge, just the opposite the opposite side of the River Thames from the Houses of Parliament, are camping out to be the first in line. Uh, you know, you have some of these people who just adore the royals. We, uh, to be honest with you, as a covering. Um, um, various royal events over the years, weddings, um, anniversaries, uh, whatnot, jubilees. A, a similar group of people are, are always there at the front in those tents. Right. They're just the, the royal obsessives and good for them. That's what they love and that's what they do. Most people are not doing that. Well, we'll see what happens with that. And I understand that the crowds are still coming out to greet King Charles III as well. And he made a trip to Northern Ireland. Yes, he did. So as part of the constitutional obligations of the new monarch, he is visiting the the, the four capitals, obviously began in London, um, uh, made his way, of course, to Edinburgh yesterday as part of uh, um, being for, there for the service and the lying in uh, rest of his of his mother uh, in Edinburgh. So that's the Scottish capital today. It's the Northern Irish capital, a constituent part of the UK. And within the last hour, he and the Queen Consort Camilla landed uh, in Belfast and went to Hillsborough Castle. They were greeted by crowds there and he shook hands with members of the public there. And thereafter, he's currently uh, inside Hillsborough Castle meeting with uh, leaders of the main political parties in Northern Ireland. That's important because it varies across a large political spectrum. The divide uh, is still strong in Northern Ireland between the um, more or less the half of Northern Ireland that want to stay part of the UK mm -hmm. and the other half that want to join Ireland and reject the monarchy. And they, indeed, the first minister designate, Michelle O'Neill, 
she is uh, the. It'll be the first time when she takes that role, presumably, eventually takes that role. The first time a Republican leader will be first minister of Northern Ireland, and she is meeting with him right now. Now she did sign the book of condolences on the death of his mother, and it is a very formal and cordial relationship. Nonetheless, she could be first minister of Northern Ireland, somebody who wants to see Northern Ireland become part of the Republic of Ireland and reject the monarchy completely. Oh, that is fascinating. Also, what do we know about the invites for the funeral at this point, Redmond? I mean, I would imagine there's a lot of people, a lot of world leaders who would like to be there. Oh, they certainly would. And it's uh, it's the list is uh, just about every country with the exception of, well, guess what? Russia, Belarus are not invited and uh, Myanmar, given the uh, the regime there. Uh, other than that, uh, if you are a world leader or a head of state, you are invited. However, it's you can't bring an entourage. It's going to be extremely limited by all accounts to a world leader plus their partner. No ministers, no hangers on, because mm. if you're going to get leaders from every single country in the world, you're, it's going to be full up pretty quick, along with everybody from the UK who has connections, royal family members, uh, politicians here, whatnot. The guest list is extremely exclusive. And the logistics and security surrounding keeping all these world leaders safe. You hear there's reports that a lot of leaders are being asked that they're going to have to be transported on buses to Westminster Hall. Now, Joe Biden isn't getting on a bus with right. Justin Trudeau or uh, the governor general or whomever. Uh, there will be uh, entourages for these bigger world leaders who need this top security. And the, the logistics that are a headache, a huge headache. But this has been, of course, decades in the planning. It sure sounds like it. All right, Redmond, thank you so much. Thank you, Simi. Bye. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about our wildfire and smoke situation in this province. Usually when we get into September, those concerns start to subside a little bit. We get some rain coming. Well, that hasn't happened yet. The province remains very dry, and that looks to stay that way for the next few days anyway. So we do still have wildfires of note burning, some that seem to be growing, and smoke continues to be a problem. Let's get an update now with Aidan Curry, who's a fire information officer for the BC Wildfire Service. Aidan, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. What is the situation? So for this time of year, is this usually where we're at or is there anything unusual about where we find ourselves? Yeah, it depends kind of each year as we see um, when we get the most precipitation, when the season starts, it can all play a role in how long the wildfire season uh, will ultimately take uh, to end. So last year, by this time, we were still seeing some wildfires of note, but it was generally quite, quite a bit cooler than we're seeing right now. Okay, so what are we seeing in terms of fires right now? Yeah, so right now we're sitting at about uh, 1,496 fires to date provincially um, with about 103,000 hectares burned. So last year we were much, much higher, I think over 800,000 hectares burned by this point. Um, So while we haven't seen, you know, as many of those large active wildfires and wildfires of note across the province, we do still have a few active ones, such as the Battleship Mountain and Flood Falls Trail wildfires. Okay, and so which one do you think is causing the most concern right now? Well, right now the largest one is definitely the Battleship Mountain wildfire located just west of Hudson's Hope up north. Uh, The fire is currently estimated to be about 28,765 hectares in size. Uh, This wildfire has been displaying quite aggressive fire behavior over the last few days. And 
up north, they aren't expecting much um, it reprieve from the dry conditions and high winds. So it is expected to display that aggressive behavior over the next few days. So it's going to stay that way. Is it at all under control? No, this one is still classified as out of control and growing. Okay, so that one's a big concern. Is that causing a lot of smoke issues too? That one, not necessarily, um, just because it is so far up north. Um, now, down here, we are seeing more smoke from, you know, the Manning Park area, Hope, as well as the Southeast Fire Center um, out in the east. But there are also fires down in Washington and Oregon that are producing quite quite a, an amount of smoke for this area. Okay, so that's what the concern then is, right? It's not just these BC fires, it's fires from up and down the Pacific Northwest. Absolutely, yeah. The smoke and haze are visible throughout much of British Columbia today, especially um, and the smoky conditions are expected to persist throughout the province. So um, as we move through the next few days, there may be visibility concerns on various routes around the province. We are encouraging everyone to check Drive BC for any warnings um, in wherever they're traveling. So what do we know about the Flood Falls Trail Fire? Yeah, so this one is still estimated to be um, about 520 hectares in size. We didn't see much growth on the fire yesterday, which is good news. Um, there are currently 78 firefighters, seven helicopters, and two pieces of heavy equipment assigned to this fire. Um, and it's burning in quite steep terrain, which has been a uh, main challenge for our ground crews that are continuing to work on their containment adju- objectives. Okay, so that one's still obviously a lot of concern there. Like, are, Is that one near homes at all? Like, Should people be concerned? Uh, there is an evacuation uh, alert and order issued by the Fraser Valley Regional District and District of Hope. Uh, for the areas in floods and laid law areas. So um, if you are in the area, it's good to connect with your local government if you are not already on evacuation alert or order. Um, Have that plan in place and connect with your neighbours about what an evacuation would look like. Ultimately, these situations can be very emotional and feel out of your control, but the best thing you can do is be prepared and arm yourself with as much information as possible if you are near a wildfire. Okay, are we expecting any kind of relief even with the smoke over the next little while? Um, the smoke is expected for the next few days, um, but we are expecting uh, closer to the end of the week some isolated showers and better humi- humidity recoveries overnight with the cooler temperatures in the southern half of the province. So this combination does help reduce uh, growth and fire behavior on our wildfires that allows our ground crews to gain closer access to the fires for better direct attack objectives. All right. So Aiden, would you say what we need right now is probably a little more typical September weather? That would be great. Yes, a little more rain always helps. I know, it sure sounds like Who knew we would be hoping for that at this time of year? Aiden, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. It is not easy out there these days dealing with all the different financial pressures that probably seem like they're coming at you from all angles. Numbers out of the United States this morning showing that inflation not slowing down last month in that country, something like 8.3% of an inflation rate, even though they did see gas prices decreasing. So yeah, still a lot of concerns. There is pressure on your budget. So you know it would probably help? A bit of a raise, right? But is this a good time to ask for a raise, given everything else that is going on out there? Well, let's talk about that. Robert Hosking joins us now, Senior Regional Director at an HR consulting firm called Robert Half. Uh, Robert, thanks for being here. Thanks very much for having me. Is this an issue that you think is coming up more and more? People are thinking, I really need a raise. <laughs> it definitely is. And uh, and certainly something I think on a lot of people's minds, as you say, inflation continues to uh, increase and, and be an issue. And for those that have been making the same amount of money, 
in their current role, their spending power has definitely decreased or declined over the last year or so. Right. Are they looking around, too, and wondering, is it time to leave their job? Because we keep hearing about what a tight labor market this is, too, that there's a lot of opportunity out there. It is, absolutely. And this continues to be a very tight labor market, both uh, for employers looking to hire new individuals and uh, and for those that are in roles are in high demand uh, to leave those companies. And so uh, if somebody's not feeling appreciated or compensated well, um, they may very well be looking for that next opportunity or it may even come to them directly. Okay, but how do you, maybe you don't want to leave your position, right? How do you broach this with your boss when even the company is maybe having a tough time right now too, and you know that? Absolutely. And that is you know, certainly a concern, I think, on a lot of people's minds with regards to should I ask or, or should I not? I think it really does begin with having an open conversation or discussion with your leader uh, in the organization. Uh, maybe talk a bit about how you're feeling uh, and, uh, and either A, request the raise um, or talk about what things you could maybe do differently or contributions that you've made in the past um, that have saved the company money or potentially improved processes or things that maybe you've done. And be honest about how you're feeling and, uh, and share that you believe this might be the right time for a raise, particularly um, given um, all of the other pressures. Now, Robert, I've talked to so many people about this over the years because I feel like the hardest part is just walking into the boss's office and and asking for that meeting or like what is the proper what is the good language here is there like some kind of template that we can use for this conversation (laughs) it it, it is uncomfortable there's no doubt about it and i and i do think though on the on the flip side that many of leaders are anticipating that it either will happen uh and in some cases they're even preempting it uh by uh, bringing up the conversation because they recognize the value of their employees, but also uh, of the uh, the risk of losing uh, individuals. And so it is, I think, setting that time aside, um, letting your leader know what the discussion will be about uh, and, uh, and, and your thoughts. And again, this isn't an angry or uh, uh, confrontational discussion. This is something that's about you and your career and about opportunities um, and what you'd like to do. And uh, and, and bringing more to the table. And maybe it's even making sure you've done your homework um, so that you know a little bit about market rates um, for similar positions. And there's some tools that can help you do that. And, uh, and then be able to uh, work with your leader to say, here are some of the things I'm committing to do or I'd like to continue to do, which uh, would then potentially lean into uh, an increase in comp. Okay, so let's, t- let's talk about this from the other perspective, and that is the point, the, the perspective of your manager, of your boss, whereas I think a lot of them sometimes say, well, you know, we discuss compensation at X time of year, and let's leave it for that. Can you get away with that these days, though? Can you say, oh, we'll talk about it at your next performance review? I think if there is some measurable goals or things associated with that. So from an employer perspective, being able to say, here are some of the things that we'd like to see or have you do or contribute to. And then that would lead to the next conversation, which would be around um, that compensation increase. But there's definitely a risk there as well, Um, particularly given the pressure that's going on. You wait too long and you run the risk of losing somebody. And and the cost of replacing that role is likely going to be higher um, in two ways. Number one, the uh, new employee that you hire will likely have a higher compensation expectation um, in many cases than the person that's left. But also the cost of onboarding somebody and bringing them into the mix is, uh, is certainly expensive. So here's the thing. I also wonder about the the rush to retire in Canada. I've been reading a lot about that the last couple of days, that perhaps that's where we're losing a lot of very experienced people. Do companies 
underestimate what you just talked about there, Robert, that the cost of hiring people and going through that process and getting them into the position until they feel comfortable in the position. I, I do believe so. And, and certainly to your point, when as people are retiring, there's a lot of intellectual knowledge that is disappearing um, with those people. And many organizations don't have the internal uh, team to be able to lean right into it or to move right in and cover off where that uh, that loss is or where that gap may be. And uh, bringing somebody in does take time. And um, certainly if you're bringing somebody in that's training or learning the role, uh, that uh, that time uh, frame of bringing them into the, again, from learning and development perspective is uh, uh, could be up to two times the cost of the first year annualized salary. So uh, definitely a risk uh, for organizations right now. What did you think about the all these articles and things that we've been seeing lately on the issue of quiet quitting? <laughs> you know, it's it, and it's a, it's a great uh, question because I, I think we're certainly hearing and seeing that uh, quite a bit in our, our organization that uh, um, working with uh, with companies that have panicked a little bit, they've lost people, they didn't anticipate losing people. Um, those people have moved on into something else and. Uh, uh, and finding that uh, that's that's creating a really big gap uh, in their organization and and causing them to to really need to hire quickly or bring somebody in um, to the role quickly. So it it is definitely something that uh, that is continues to be out there for sure. I just think it's funny that they finally put a name to something that I'm sure a lot of people have been doing for a long time. And now there's a name <laughs> exactly. and now everybody's talking about it. I'm thinking, what? Like, I've heard about this, but nobody had, there wasn't a name for it before. Um, so, Robert, this is fascinating to me because this issue of asking for a raise is, is really, really difficult. So w- give us an idea then. If today somebody says, I'm going to ask for a raise, where should they start? So definitely, uh, you know, I, I, I would say do a little homework first um, to understand your your role, your uh, work, your experience. What what are you doing today? Maybe what changes have happened over the last little while as well, um, because we've really observed that as companies have evolved and changed, as people have left organizations, sometimes the internal team takes on more uh, and more responsibility and is doing more than maybe they even were a year ago. Um, So the job has fundamentally changed and jot those things down. So really be thinking about how's my job changed? How has the market changed? What is the the going rate per se for my role today based on um, my, uh, my experience or based on what I've learned? And then set that meeting up with your leader Sit down again. Have a great open conversation about it, um, and and put it on the table that this is something that you'd you'd like to, to see happen, uh, and or um, are there other things that maybe could also be layered into that that could be incentives for an individual as well? Because uh, not every organization can necessarily ante up a raise right now, but there are some other things that might be appealing to an employee. Uh, to uh, also incent them. And that could be a, a bonus, uh, maybe a one-off bonus, um, could be perks um, aligned with um, home office or upgrades or professional development or work-life balance. So there are some things that maybe would be appealing to somebody. Um, and so be thinking about those things before your conversation. What are some of the other things that I might be a, a, attractive to me that might keep me there? Right. All good advice. Robert, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you very much. This is Mornings with Simi.
Well, it has been a chaotic, a messy summer for traveling through a Canadian airport, particularly if you had to go through Pearson in Toronto. There was a lot of criticism of different agencies and the federal government for not fixing these problems. Well, according to the feds, in that last weekend of August, so from August the 22nd to the 28th, 86% of flights at the four biggest airports in Canada were on time. But is that accurate? Joining us now to talk more about this is Duncan Dee, a former Air Canada COO and expert of public transportation and policy. Duncan, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me, Simi. So do you buy that number? Do you buy that 86%? Look, I mean, it's it is a number. So um, to the extent that the government wants to rely on it, that's their prerogative. But it has no um, semblance at all with reality. Uh, The 86 percent was cobbled together by considering flights that were departing an hour after their scheduled departure on time. So the only way you get to an 86 percent number is by fudging. Um, how you get there. Okay, so how can they even count that, though? If it, if it left an hour after it was supposed to leave, how is that on time? <laughs> it, it's really quite something. Um, there isn't any uh, authority, any airline, any airport, anywhere else on the planet that uh, considers a flight that is uh, late by an hour um, to, be in, to be on time. The entire air transportation sector, in fact, is... Um, uh, is based on on-time performance, which is considered to be flights that depart within 15 minutes of the published scheduled departure time. And so uh, for the government to stretch that into 60 minutes um, is really uh, quite something else. Um, It's um, misleading. uh, And it shows really, from my perspective, a fundamental um, disrespect for the time that travelers have uh, planned. So imagine when you're if you're leaving YVR to get out to let's say um, Saskatoon and your flight is an hour late. Well, f- according to the government statistics, that's that's just fine. It's it's on time. Um, and if you were connecting to a point beyond that and you miss your flight, well, you know if it was within an hour of when you were supposed to go, then that's fine. That's on time. So the government is really taking great liberties to try to cover up the tremendous damage uh, the summer travel delays have had on the airline industry, but also the tourism sector in Canada. Okay, so from, you know, your, ex- from your experience, Duncan, and what you have seen then, is the situation getting better? Because the airline industry and the government would like us to believe it's getting better, but is it? It is getting better because of one very crucial uh, fact, that uh, the travel season has ended. We are now back to school, we are now back to work, and the Traveler, the number of travelers traveling before Labor, Labor Day versus after Labor Day is between 15 and 20 percent uh, lower. So the fact that you're removing over an, almost overnight uh, between Labor Day and after Labor Day, about 15 to 20 percent of the number of travelers removes a lot of the pressures we've seen on the travel system this summer. So what's that, what does that mean for the airline industry? Because obviously a lot of bad publicity over the summer. People have had bad experiences. Does that mean that people are less likely to travel? Do you think it's turned some people off? This is a massive black eye, Simi, in terms of what's gone on. You know, CNN last week updated their um, travel disruption top 10 list uh, for the world. Three Canadian airports were on the top 10 worst airport di- disruptions list Uh, published on CNN, a global uh, news network, uh, last week. Uh, Toronto was number one, 
Montreal was number two, Vancouver was number 10. So, you know, no other country on the planet had more than two airports. The other only other country that had two airports on the list was the UK with Gatwick and Manchester. Canada had three. We took uh, gold and silver and 10th place. So, you know, this is a huge black eye, not just to the airline industry, but the tourism sector. And there's still so many other issues that are um, creating an even bigger black eye on what's uh, what's happening within the tourism sector during this recovery. So are we dealing with the fundamental issues then in improving the situation? Like what is causing these delays and are we going to fix it? Look, I, I, we discussed this the last time uh, we, we chatted and really the government is using Band-Aids uh, when really more serious intervention is required. You've got a structural problem in the Canadian air transportation sector. And most Canadian travelers actually know that. You know, we've had some good years when things are, you know, relatively quiet and there aren't any major issues. But, you know, the fact that for the last five months, Canadian airports have ranked among the worst, not in North America, but around the world, should be a concern, not just to the travelers and the airlines, but to the government. But the government seems to feel that, this is something that they just could continue to spin their way out of, like changing the goalposts and calling a, a, a flight that's delayed an hour on time. And yet we'll still travel, though, won't we, Duncan? Because, you know, we yeah. saw predictions of lower airfares and I was just checking some this morning. And sure enough, there are some pretty good deals out there. And sometimes it feels like that's all it's going to take to get people to try again. You're absolutely right. And, you know, the other thing that's a big threat to the Canadian airports and airline sector is the fact that, you know, we're only about a 45 minute drive to Bellingham. So, you know, to the extent that travelers really get that travel itch and they want to avoid disruptions, there are alternatives. Um, you know, most of the Canadian population li lives within about 90 minutes of a, a border airport. So, you know, it's something that if Canadians really wanted to, they can do that. But clearly airlines and airports and the tourism sector in Canada have something to, to worry about to get things fixed. Because, you know, another travel peak where Canadian airports are on the top 10 list of worst airports is not something anyone wants. No, it is not. Uh, Duncan, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. What is going on in the Nechaco River? That is the question that is stumping scientists as they try to figure out why it is that 11 sturgeon have washed up there and people have no idea as to how or why they ended up dead. So let's talk more about that investigation. Joining us now is Nicholas Gantner, who's the uh, ministry's senior fisheries biologist for the Omneca region. Nicholas, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Simi. Good morning. So what, How are you? I'm good, thank you. What do we know so far about the sturgeon that have been killed? Yeah, not, not very much uh, right now. We're just uh, trying to get a grasp on the extent of this issue. We, uh, As you uh, provided information in your intro, we have about 11 fish that have washed up in the Nechaco River between Vanderhoof and Prince George. And we're just uh, beginning to... Uh, uh, look at uh, causalities now um, through uh, necropsies that we're planning for starting today for this week. Okay, so is this, how unusual is this? Like, do we sometimes get this happening? Is this a higher number than usual? So mortality rates principally are, are common. It's a natural part of, uh, of, of nature. But uh, for the Nechako, this is uh, very unusual. So in the last, uh, say, 20, 30 years, 
where we've had a really close look at this population, we haven't seen anything uh, to that extent. Um, it's a little bit more common in the lower Fraser where mortalities can happen, obviously, and, and are being reported. But in the Nechaco, to see 11 fish, uh, adult fish uh, mortalities is, is very unusual. So we're very concerned because of that. Okay, so when you do see it happen in the Fraser then, do we generally know what is going on? Do we know why it happens, when it happens at the Fraser? So historically... Uh, there was uh, some some bigger die-offs in 1993-94, and and even at that time, a close investigation of of, uh, of biologists at the time uh, didn't really pinpoint a, a cause. So uh, I think that's still uh, these these periodic events are still puzzling us. And and uh, of, of course, in some events, in single events, we may know what what occurred, but uh, uh, in this current event, we we don't know the culprit yet. How critical is it that we find out what's going on here? I know with sturgeon, right, anything that impacts their health is, is very important. Yeah, absolutely. And Simeon, and up here in the Nechaco, so I'm, I'm, I'm working out of Prince George and the Nechaco River. Uh, the population here is, uh, is listed under the Species at Risk Act, and there's an active recovery program uh, ongoing. Um, and losing 11 fish, uh, and those are the ones that we reported and, and know of, uh, that's that's concerning to us. Uh, and we work with our partners, uh, First Nations, other orders of government, um, experts and, and industry on, on, on figuring out uh, what happened here this summer and, and what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, how, how critical are, so look, what do we know about sturgeon at this point? I know we talk about them as being majestic and amazing, <laughs> but why are they all those things? Well, if, if you think of these fish having existed for about 175 million years, uh, they, they swim uh, right through our cities and, and have endured uh, 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 million, millions of years of, of, uh, of, of environmental change, and, and, and they're still around. And, and uh, to see those majestic animals um, uh, wash up on shores is, is really uh, disappointing and, and concerning to us. So we have a, a responsibility to follow up and, and ensure that we find out as much as we can from those mortalities and, and overall to, to make sure that these fish uh, persist in the, to the future. Is it a healthy population? Well, speaking for the Nechaco population and the upper Fraser, so this would be Prince George upstream towards McBride, uh, both these uh, populations are listed on the Sarah, so it's difficult to call them um, healthy. The, the upper Fraser population is very small and, and considered healthy, but the Nechaco population is declining and there's recruitment failure that has been identified and that's why we're actively working on recovering this population. That's a lot of work there. Is there any place in the world that they are thriving? Is this, is this unique to BC? Well, white sturgeon are uh, in Canada uh, only uh, present in British Columbia waters. Um, we, we do get some reports currently also down the coast in California uh, of, of some mortalities occurring there, but uh, I believe uh, uh, those, those are possibly caused by different issues, but uh, we'll have to wait and see what our investigation reveals. Yeah, so tell me about the steps to the investigation here, Nicholas. So when does it become a concern? Like 11, that's a big number. So is it two, three, you start to think, okay, we better pay attention to this? Well, we found we were, got the first report of one fish, and we were uh, not immediately drastically concerned. It's unusual, so we brought the fish into our freezer, and we were going to look at uh, doing some follow-up work on that individual fish. But then, within a few days, 
Uh, we found of, we, we heard of eight more in total, including through a flight by our colleagues from the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. They did an aerial survey and found five more on that flight alone. So within uh, a few days, we were up to 10, and then there was another one in 11 fish uh, reported. And at that point, obviously, we were concerned, and, and our immediate uh, response was to try to get as many of those carcasses as soon as possible into our freezers so we can do follow-up work. It's really difficult to determine what uh, a fish died of if it's been on the riverbank for several days, so we wanted to be there as quickly as possible, and that's also why we issued this uh, call uh, and the media release to um, ask the public to report a new sightings so we can uh, determine in the immediate uh, phase the extent, so find out if there's more. Uh, and then uh, also uh, from that on with fish in the freezers, uh, learn as much as possible off from those from those mortalities. Okay, so then to be clear, you are asking for the public's help here, right? So w- what should the public look for? How can they help? Yeah, so if you're uh, walking, biking, uh, recreating, paddling uh, on the Fraser or uh, the Nechaco River, uh, and you do see um, an adult uh, fish uh, on shore, then, then to give us a call um, uh, or an email with a photo of that uh, fish, and then we can follow up uh, with a local biologist uh, and and ver- and verify whether we have that reported already or not, so to avoid duplication uh, or, or duplicate reports. And then, uh, depending on the condition of the fish, we will go uh, retrieve it or sample it on shore. Okay, so this is a critical time then, though, isn't it, Nicholas? Because you need to know right now if there's more of them out there. That's correct. Okay, so people should contact you. So once again, how do they contact you if they see something? Yeah, so the, um, my phone number and my email address are, are in the media right now because of this event. So um, you can uh, reach me at, at those um, or report it to the RAP line um, to the Conservation Office of Service as well. That would also be a route that works. All right, we will do that. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Simi, thank you for your interest uh, and have a wonderful day. This is Mornings with Simi.